You're listening to World Talk Radio, where the world comes to talk. World Talk Radio. I want to invite you to listen to the Sharon Kleiner Hour. Life, the power of water and global warming, climate change, and your health. I bet you haven't learned yet or been told yet that the the situation of civilization because of the climate changing for, for as long as you can think back with generations of the past has been the changing globe. And as cultures change and civilization changes, fashion changes, your car design changes, you now have computers, you're not using your phones even as much. There's changes going on along with you and the earth you're living on. And you need to learn, and what the show is about each week is a sincere concentration on what you can learn and be reminded to think about you changing your life, people around you, and what's going on with health, attitude, all the things you can think about that put a tug and a pull on your life every day to maybe hold you back or maybe you don't have the same productivity you might have if you had some of these reminders and better education about your health and what to do every day. Water is vital. You're made up of 50 trillion cells. Now think of yourself like a walking sponge. Behind that skin are 50 trillion cells, little bubbles just bouncing, needing hydration. Now what, what this means You've never been taught, and it's so sad, but it happens. You've never been taught that the moment you were born, you entered the air you breathe in that delivery room, you left the pocket of water, and you begin a process of life to passing on. They call it death. So the moment you're born, you left the pocket of water into the air, sucked you like a vacuum cleaner of moisture and you begin to dehydrate through the skin. That moment, the water intake should begin. Moisture level has to be retained to slow that moisture level down. If it isn't begin right away and keep up with that, you dehydrate by whatever your particular individuality is. Remember, no two eyes are alike, no two skin types alike, no two fingerprints alike. They're even finding that on the facial organ, everybody has a different skin type, like your fingerprint and your eyes. So obviously there could be some evaluations there that it's because of the way your particular dehydration and the way you're living in the air you're breathing. And the air you're breathing has to have constant moisture in the air, the, kind, the moisture you don't see. And what has happened also is lack of education, indoor conditions, forced air heating and cooling, insulated windows and walls, chemistry and the paint. So indoor conditions are very dry. Each show is going to be teaching you more about your health, your attitude, your stress, and more for you to learn. Today we have a lot of excitement. We have uh, Dr. Tom Atsit, who is an ecologist, and we're going to talk about this global warming and what he has learned in all the years he's been at learning more about the ecology and the ecosystem and the health of the earth. Our second guest today is going to be Jeff Feldman. He's the president and CEO of the Greater Eureka 
Springs Chamber of Commerce in Eureka Springs, Arkansas. We're going to talk about some of the unusual springs that they have that they would like to share with information. We're going to listen to our sponsor, and we'll be right back with Dr. Atzit. Discover the secret of Nature's Tears Eye Mist, an entirely different approach to eye care without eye drops. When your tear film is dry, your eyes feel dry. Nature's Tears Eye Mist naturally supplements the tear film with Biologic Aqua Absolute Premium Standard Grade of pure, all-natural water. Nature's Tears Eye Mist, just a mist. All-natural, safe, convenient, no preservatives. Nature's Tears Eye Mist can be purchased nationwide at selected eye care professionals and drugstores near you. To reach a show host or guest during the live show, dial toll-free in North America, 866-613-1612. Or, if outside the USA and Canada, dial 001-858-268-3068. Dr. Atsit, are you with us? I am. Thank you for joining us. I know... Uh, People can be very busy in their daily lives, and we always appreciate when people can take some time and be on the show uh, to talk about the earth and the water. And um, Dr. Tom uh, Atsit, uh, would you tell us about your past and where you're, why you're where you're at and what you've been learning, and then we'll go into uh, some of the subjects that you and I thought would be very valuable for our listeners to learn today. Hey, um I started out in forestry uh, in the Northwest as far as my career, and uh, early on switched to ecology and have worked in uh, ecology in southwestern Oregon since 1974, trying to uh, kind of get a handle on how things work together in order to provide operational information uh, to agencies and uh, other organizations that are that work with ecology so I've been here for uh, over 30 years and have worked for the Forest Service for about 36 years and um, mainly uh, in ecology of the Klamath geological province I'm not an expert in global climate change it just so happens that you have to uh, know something about that and because it's a, uh, ancillary to what you do as an ecologist. Climate is one of the principal contributors to uh, how plants behave. So, Okay, let's, before we go further then, um, let's explain to our listeners. There's, there's so much going on all over the world that people are confused about different who is a specialist, who is an expert, and we'll go into that today. But what is the specialty of an ecologist? What is the specialty of an ecologist teaching others? Well, the ecology is, is the science of the interaction between the organism and the environment, and there can be specialties within that. But an ecologist is thought of more as a generalist, rather than a specialist. Mm -hmm. And by the way, Tom is better than Dr. Atsit. 
<laughs> okay, I will. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. And so what, uh, what you do as an ecologist is more generally look at the landscape and the players in the landscape uh, and try to understand how they interact and behave with the climate or the environment. Now, in the United States, because not everybody all over the world has uh, an organization form called Forest Service. Now, what would before we go into the education, because you're so involved all those years studying with the Forest Service in the United States as an ecologist, what is the Forest Service primary organizational? What are they t to do every day in the United States? Well, there, the Forest Service was set up at, at, in 1905 to uh, basically service the forest. They were the first organization that had government organization that had service in its name. And then the IRS came along and kind of ruined everything. Uh, but uh, generally speaking, it's to maintain uh, the uh, services that the forests provide to the people. Mm -hmm. In other words, it teaches both sides. It teaches uh, the environment. It teaches uh, it's a scientific knowledge continually studying about what is happening to each part of each place in the environment, depending upon state or wherever. Yes. Uh, and, and to learn how everybody can join in and protect uh, the taxpayers in the United States pay for, this, uh, for that to be done. Right, and they should expect certain services. And when I say services, uh -huh. one of the first and most important human services that forests provide all over, uh, whether they're agency forests or they're just plain public forests, is water. And it provi they provide habitat. They provide animals. Uh, they provide uh, wood and recreation. Uh -huh. And in some cases... Uh, the national forests provide forage for range animals. So, I mean, the idea of having a functional ecosystem is what the Forest Service and other agencies and uh, essentially we should be about. We should have functional ecosystems uh, all around us. Now, you're going to educate us today, and I'm really very excited about this, Tom, is we need to, with, you have a very strong outlook on what is happening here. Let's start out by saying very bluntly, very definite, what your outlook is on what has been going on for all this time up to date with the ecology, the organism, the Earth's pattern, and what is happening. Let's just talk. Not, we're not going to talk about our civilization, listeners. We're talking about the Earth right. and the planet that we all share. Tom, give us some of your thinking. Well, if you go all the way back and you're talking four billion years, the Earth has been cooling and drying since it was uh, put together. And so when you go and you look at various times like the Jurassic, and everybody knows Jurassic because of the movie Jurassic Park, things were a lot warmer, they were a lot wetter, there was a higher CO2 content in the air than there is today. Uh, things have been kind of cooling down over... In other words, in, those, in that era of the formation of, uh, we'll call it back in some of the beginnings, there was a lot of humidity in the air. Yes. A, a lot, lot more water on the surface of the earth. Yes. Yeah. And like I said, uh, everybody can think of a kind of a downward trajectory of cooling and drying. Mm -hmm. 
And then when you think about what's happened lately, uh, one of the major uh, events or <laughs> several events called the Ice Ages that have just just happened just very, very recently, and we're talking a million years ago. Uh, and when you think of the Jurassic, you're talking about 200 million years ago. So when we think of the Earth and we try to learn about the Earth, it has an extremely long history, and most of us can't even imagine what a million years is like, let alone 200 million years. Now, when did they start uh, putting together the records and then they're forming the records of what we've learned? In other words, how did they compare? That's a monitor, let's say. Uh, how, did they, how far did they back do we go with the formation of the first records to compare to that we even have today to compare to? Well, it's not not all that long ago that we've even have had temperature gauges. I've wondered that. about that because it sounds like they're so expert about all this time. <laughs> and you know, okay, there's other ways of going about this. But, yeah, go but, forward. So, so Tell say us. you have uh, temperature gauges back into the 1600s, and people were interested yeah. in change. Uh huh. But what you have, just like if you look at trees, I think everyone knows that if you core trees, you could go backwards in time. And the oldest trees we have are briscombe pine in, in California at the high elevations. And we could look at the, the way that the trees have grown. The, the rings within the trees tell us what the climate was like to a certain extent. And you're calling the core in the tree is the ring in the tree. That, if, if, listeners, if you cut a, a piece of wood, a tree, you'll look at those little rings in there. And that's what uh, Dr. Atzett is talking about. It, right. Uh, there's rings in the tree to tell you, and especially with his knowledge, he can tell you what the rings are, what you're reading in the rings. Right. And okay. it's a proxy for temperature gauges. Okay. And so are ice cores. And some the ice has cores also? Ice cores also. Uh-huh. They could measure uh, the isotopes in the air, in the bubbles in the ice core, and begin to understand what the Earth was like back then. Mm-hmm. There's also, uh, they core the bottom of lakes and bring up the muck. And what they find in those cores are pollen grains. And they could tell what species or at least what uh, r- relations genera are in those, those uh, cores. So there's a lot of ways they could go back in time. Now, I, I'm going to go follow on that one because all of us are imagining, okay, we have a drilling down at the bottom of the lake or whatever water it may be, and they're coring down into the rock or into what? Well, it, it, every lake uh, picks up. Every year it picks up a layer just like uh, uh, a layer in an annual ring in a tree. It picks up a layer of sediment okay, here in the sediment. Pacific Northwest. And okay. so if you drill down at the bottom of a lake, you'll have layers of sediment, and there's ways that you could date those layers, mm-hmm. and then you look at the relative amounts of pollen. Like if there's a lot of oak pollen, it was probably a hot time. Mm-hmm. If there was a lot of, uh, say, true fir pollen, it was probably a, a cooler time. I see. So there's ways that you could look okay, at those understand. things. Uh, the ice cores, the pollen diagrams, the trees, and it's kind of a proxy for, mm-hmm. for climate. Okay, I mean, now today what we're talking there is we are in this indation 
And, and listeners, I need to share with you my thinking. It's just to think about. Sure. All that's going on with all of the education that is so important and so exciting to learn more about our Earth and the planet we're all sharing and living on. But, my gosh, uh, it sounds like the, everything's going to come to an end real quick. It sounds like, you know, they talk about consumer or worldwide confidence. How can you have confidence when you're so confused? Uh, because people want to bring out the negative instead of what the positive would be with the negative. Um, uh, what do you believe has happened with the word climate change? Uh, what do we need to learn about that? Well, I think the first thing that I think is that exactly what we were talking about, when we go back and we use pollen and we use other proxies in order to understand what the climate is like, people ought to be thinking that our surety suffers. I mean, it's like... Our civilization is suffering. Know that our, our understanding is okay. not certain. Okay, our understanding is I not for sure. Is kind of lacking. Okay, we'll never be a hundred percent sure in science of of anything, because there's always surprises. So, you know, I like to think that when I watch people on TV, that one day they'll invent a little meter that sticks on the top of their head, that when they're BSing us, it kind of goes red. <laughs> okay, and when everything, what they're, what they're telling us the truth, it goes green. Can I tell you, know, you maybe, just... uh, Tom, is it possible, and this is just <laughs> another thought, they are so convinced, they are so convinced they're going to get that next grant, they're going to get that next foundation money, they're going to get that next amount of money from the taxpayer. Is it the fact that they're sincerely so convinced that they can bring in enough funds to maybe someday become so convincing, because it really does bring in a lot of money. Yeah, it does. And here's, Negative brings in money. Here's kind of where I get off, because I have no idea what the motives of, say, a general group are. And I like the saying that generalizations are usually not credible, mm -hmm. including this one. Well, because you are a scientist, you're very much like I am when I study. Uh, you have to be, uh, your theories have to be evaluations knowing the next moment the evaluation is going to go forward. That's right. another theory. And, and, and you know that there are hopefully uh, thousands of colleagues out there that are willing to critique what you've done. Work with you as a team. Yes, in a, in a contributory fashion. Mm -hmm. And that's what's really neat about science, I think, is that most of the people that I deal with, I know will look at what I've done or what I think I know and critique me in a sense that is valuable so that I rethink what I've done and maybe make the next step, the next iteration in my thought processes better than what I was you know, when I started. And that's something, Tom, that people every day should be living their lives to think about that moment. Yes. That second is that second. But the next second is going to change. Yes. And then the next second is going to change. What you, what you were saying at the start of the show about change being essential, uh, you know, there's a saying that change is the only constant. It's the only constant. Yes. And, and you can rely upon it. Yes. And, uh, you know, and there, so, I, I was reading about a NASA, with a NASA scientist not long ago, and he said, you know, it's so sad that people can't go into something with an opinion 
and to be good at what you're doing every day at what you want to accomplish, don't form an opinion. Keep forming a theory and evaluation to that, what you just said, the next second, the next moment. Well, see, that's almost uh, how evolution works. Uh-huh. Every, every generation, something is put out there. Uh, a new, you know, the new babies, so to speak, the new seeds are put out there every year. Mm-hmm. There are, there is a range of genet- uh, genetic material that's put out there, say by Douglas fir or say by a bear. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's fewer generations or uh, fewer babies in a bear than there are Douglas fir seeds, but mm-hmm. evolutionary, that, that stuff is put out there and tested by stress every year so you need three things for evolution and change in the pressure change in pressure is part of that so i'm going to ask you something about that okay let's go back to the now this is something everyone worldwide on the planet should be thinking about and and you know who's i'm not going to push anybody to think my way i'm just saying to think sure let's say there's a there will be a change every moment with a change we have a particular individual or a species that is very uncomfortable with a change. You can go to the forest, Tom. Could you, would you have a tree that's living with all of those trees, but one tree is uncomfortable about something changing? Uh, uh, it, uncomfortable probably would be teleological attributing characteristics. You know, that's what that, I meant. Okay, there we go. We're coming into the characteristics. There are, there are a range of seeds that are out there. And just like, you know, you could even go back to the Bible said, some seed falls on unfertile ground, and mm-hmm. some of it is not adapted. Yeah. Uh, what evolution does, it saves what works, and it discards what doesn't. There we go, the characteristics yeah. feeling. We're going to, Tom, we're going to take a break with our sponsor, and we'll be right back, and we'll get back into that uh offering that vision and that picture about all of us on this earth living with the earth and that thinking. We're going to listen to our sponsor and we'll be right back. Discover the secret of Nature's Tears Eye Mist, an entirely different approach to eye care without eye drops. When your tear film is dry, your eyes feel dry. Nature's Tears Eye Mist naturally supplements the tear film with Biologic Aqua Absolute Premium Standard Grade of pure, all-natural water. Nature's Tears Eye Mist, just a mist. All-natural, safe, convenient, no preservatives. Nature's Tears Eye Mist can be purchased nationwide at selected eye care professionals and drugstores near you. To reach a show host or guest during the live show, dial toll-free in North America, 866-613-1612. Or, if outside the USA and Canada, dial 001-858-268-3068. Dr. Atzett, I wanted to ask you uh, about that word, change. Uh, 
that is inevitable every moment, that change. Um, for people to understand, possibly, because even though you're, you're an environmental uh, ecologist and you're, that's your field, that when you look at the forest and you look at the river and you look at the soil and the earth we're on, do you, how do you explain to people, we're living with earth, it's not going to live with us? In other words, that we have to realize that when we're living here, there's always going to be a change. Like we, everything changes, that next moment. How can people learn to think about w- what they're living with? Well, a lot of people think of us as apart from the natural system. And we're not subject to the changes somehow because we could put ourselves in houses and so on. And I have had an experience that if some people can relate to this maybe, but when you're walking in the woods, and I've spent a lot of time putting plots all over southwestern Oregon, and every once in a while you know that something's following you, and there's cougars out there, there's bears out there, and so you kind of get this feeling that, you could be eaten, you know, in a sense, so that you are prey. In a, and so you are part of the system. You are subject to that system's whims and that you're not any more special, say, than the viruses or the bacteria. You're just part of this system and part of how it changes on a daily basis. And you could be gone in a second. Mm-hmm. And so I hope people can relate to that because... We do influence the system a lot, and that's one of the questions and, you know, that people still have about global warming. But we are part of the system. We not only change the system as we're in it, but we are subject to the changes. Mm-hmm. The other thing that I think about is ask the people in Katrina if nature kind of speaks last or bats last, so to speak. You are subject to what nature wants to do. You are part of that system. You are part of the changes that will take place. Well, and, Tom, I think we can also take them to a very personal level, is when you get up in the morning and you begin your day and you find that the weather changed and you're allergic to the weather changing because you have allergies. Yes. Uh, you woke up in the morning and all of a sudden you have the flu. Something was in the air. Uh, you have a disease. There was something in something that affected you because of the system. There was something happening. Right. Uh, and it's not just be, be extreme, uncomfortable, like what happened with Katrina or the tsunami or um, the, the different hurricanes and the tornadoes and the earthquakes and what goes on on Earth. It's, it's the system. Right. Um, with your background, how important do, would you explain that water is? to our earth well we're what percent water is you probably know better than i do the the body is what 80 to 90 up to 90 percent water yes and the earth i think is like 67 percent of the earth's surface is water water is critical to our survival and uh you know if you're talking about emergency medical things you can't live without air for very long but at the same token you can't live without water for very long Mm-hmm. So it is uh, water. How is important is it that the waters that come down, the precipitation, and a lot of people don't realize that when there is water, when the rain comes down, 
the moisture was taken out of the air to provide that rain to come down. And then when the rain stops, there's moisture in the air that you can't see. How critical is it to have the rain, and then how critical is it to have that moisture constant in the air for the breathing of the system of our Earth? Well, I could give you an example with, uh, that I've experienced with my plots and trees. Okay. Port Orford cedar is a, is a plant that occurs along the coast. Uh, and it occurs along the coast because... In, nor- in, nor- in northern Oregon. Yes. Okay. And so uh, there was a population of Port Orford cedar well inland, and uh, it was kind of a mystery as to why it occurred there. Uh, I had the lookout when she did her sweep of the uh, landscape to see if there were any fires to, to map where the fog layers remained during the day and after about a year she brought me a map that uh, of the frequency of the fog and the Port Orford cedar populations were correlated with the position of the fog so even though you could see the fog you knew that the higher humidities in those drainages where the moisture uh, sat and remained high where why Port Orford Cedar was able to survive there. I'll be, and that's a very rare, unique spot and there is in the United States. Yes, there's, Port Orford Cedar only occurs in basically the Klamath Geological Province and a little bit uh, latitude in the Taiyi Sandstones uh, further north, and that's about it. Now, and for the listeners to know, in Port Orford, Oregon, where he's talking about there are ferns that look like they're over in the tropics of some place like in the Hawaiian Islands or in other places of the world of tropics. There are plants growing with leaves there that are just like the tropics. It's just enormous leaves, and the trees are absolutely uh, a giant. Um, so uh, the soil, explain the soil, that what is happening with moisture in the air that you can't see, but it's there. What, what type of soil would you have? Well, here, this is, southwestern Oregon is one of the most complex uh, geologically uh, com- uh, anywhere in Oregon or in the northwest. Mm-hmm. It has old rocks. It has everything from acid igneous granites to ultra-basic materials like serpentine peridotite. So it has everything in between. The Oregon caves... Now, serpentine peridotite is a a particular type of rock that doesn't absorb the water, but it is an acidic rock because the water will just flow right over it. Well, it's actually a basic rock. Okay, there we go, a basic rock. And so uh, that's one of the reasons that you have the diversity here that you do is the diversity in soil materials. And now the Kalamaopsis forest in uh, southern Oregon is known to have that particular serpentine rock. It is. And so if you talk about the soil, uh, water, uh, every one of those particular geologic materials has different capabilities in maintaining a water reservoir. Okay. And part of it depends on the soil depth and how long that soil has been there. And generally speaking, from what I've found, in my studies is that uh, there are about seven inches of stored water in the soil on the average forest soil 
in southwestern Oregon. Okay, now when you say that particular types of area like that, that with a rock can re- maintain a reservoir, is that the seven inches of soil water level, or is that also counting the aquifers below? Are you taking that into mind, too? Uh, no, that aquifers are something that I haven't been able to uh, deal with. So okay. I okay, uh, that's not your world. That's a zero a zero knowledge for me. The little meter is going to red on, on that one. Okay, let's before the show's over because we, you and I both agreed we're going to do another show and and go further. But what would your explanation be of global warming? And climate change. Let's start out. What 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 is that? What does that mean to you with your field and your background? Because you've been doing a lot of writing for newspapers and different articles and lectures on this subject. What is your thinking here that people should be considering? Well, I think if from a skeptical standpoint, you need to consider is whether or not the climate is changing. And just like we've been talking about, it is changing. It will always be changing. And right now. Uh, everyone, almost everyone, agrees that it is warming. And so that's one of the first questions. Has it warmed like this before? Yes, it has. It's yeah. been warmer than this before. We go it back has. to the statement about the earth cooling and drying. How far back do we have to go? Is We could go into that. But then the second question is, uh, is it within the cyclic nature and there's still questions about that. Remember we talked about uncertainty? Yes. Uh, we're never going to be certain about anything, and I think that's just the scientific principle, is that you always leave things open. You don't close on anything because then you quit thinking about it. Mm-hmm. So we know there's cycles. We know they're a part of the change we're seeing. And then the last question is whether or not humans have are responsible for this change. And and that question has to be, I think, asked differently. There's a binomial answer like a yes or no. Uh, and if you just look at it that simply, it really does not uh, give you enough information. Because, yes, there has been influence in climate uh, by human beings. The IPCC, the International Panel on Climate Change, believes that there is some influence by human beings on climate change. But do they believe that human beings are responsible for it all? In other words, a yes or no? No, they don't. Now, you know, Tom, I've read a lot, and not anywhere near what you've done, um, but I've read, and, 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 and it's across the board, most everyone agrees that uh, 99% is the Earth doing it and a little better than 1% is the uh, human's influence. Uh, what is your feeling on that description? I, have, I, have, I don't have, have no idea. No. Yeah. I do know that uh, you go a little bit further back, and there was this Russian named Milankovitch who correlated the ice uh, lobes, and there were four of them during the ice ages that came down, and he correlated that with the the tilt of the earth, the wobble in the uh, uh, spin of the earth, and the uh, eccentricity of the orbit. Mm-hmm. And so what he found was that because the way the earth spins and the orbit is an ellipse, that's what caused the ice ages. Well, You're talking about the earth's movement in the solar system. Right. Mm-hmm. And, well, relative to the sun. 
Rather, relative to the son. Okay. Okay, and uh, he said that uh, his feeling was that that's what caused the ice ages. Okay, you think about that, and there is a pattern in those ice ages. And when I was coming out of uh, UCLA, there was this thinking that in Scientific American, you could read that we Milankovitch's predictions that we were going into another ice age mm-hmm. because of this cycle that we're seeing. But uh, you would have seen the scientists talk about that when I was first coming out of school, that this is a crisis that we might face again another ice age. Well, now we're in a situation that we're talking about a crisis of global warming. Mm-hmm. And so... Now, I'm going to ask you there, you said something. The word crisis means yeah. it's something definite. Yes. Is there a definite feel from your evaluations that there is a crisis? No. In fact, um, I used to be called down here Mr. Catastrophic because every time somebody called a fire, a big fire in southwestern Oregon that had some high severity effects, they called it catastrophic. I said, no, (laughs) that fire is fire. A uh, high-severity fire is just important for uh-huh. ecosystem processes as low-severity fire. Uh-huh. It's just the way nature is. So when I say crisis or catastrophes, to me it's kind of with a smile on my face mm-hmm. because nature, and uh, we've talked a little bit about this before, nature uses, say, what we call crises or catastrophes as uh, moments of change. Mm-hmm. watershed events that change the whole ecosystem mm-hmm. like Krakatoa did or like when the meteor hit the earth mm-hmm. or like, uh, say, Katrina for New Orleans. Mm-hmm. These extreme events Tsunami and- yeah, are particularly important for change because they put an extreme amount of pressure on all species involved, and this includes humans, okay. and those that can make it and those that can adapt are the ones that are going to go on to the next era. Okay, next, we're going to have another show. We've got to um, uh, move on here in a minute, but I wanted to ask you on our next show that we'd like to do together, what, what, what would you like to educate our listeners on the next? We've come through a little first phase of education. What do you think the next step would be? Well, we could, we could go on this way. What would be fun for me, and uh, I don't know, uh, was just kind of consider some uh, some human biases about okay, let's do that okay. about the ecosystem, like that there is a balance of nature. Okay. Next show that let's do that. Uh, <laughs> our next show with you will be on the human side of the relationship with the planet and the solar system, because and and what people can think about. And like you said, uh, please go study this. Don't just listen and think once. Go think about it. Right, and not to close on things and use your critical uh, eye, use your critical mind in order to evaluate who's saying it, why they're saying it, and make sure there's no agendas involved. Evaluate it. Don't just take... Evaluate everything you hear, I believe, is is the idea for life on this earth to be productive. Well, Tom... Dr. Atsit, thank you. Uh, this has been wonderful. And uh, I want to thank you for your time today, and let's do that next show. 
uh, here before long, and we'll go on to the next step of learning more because you do have a lot of information. Uh, I want to thank you for joining us today. Okay, thank you. Uh, and you, you have a nice day. You too. Bye. We're going to listen to our sponsor, and we'll be back with Jeff Feldman. And we'll be right back in a moment. Discover the secret of Nature's Tears Eye Mist, an entirely different approach to eye care without eye drops. When your tear film is dry, your eyes feel dry. Nature's Tears Eye Mist naturally supplements the tear film with Biologic Aqua Absolute Premium Standard Grade of pure, all-natural water. Nature's Tears Eye Mist, just a mist. All-natural, safe, convenient, no preservatives. Nature's Tears Eye Mist can be purchased nationwide at selected eye care professionals and drugstores near you. To reach a show host or guest during the live show, dial toll-free in North America, 866-613-1612. Or, if outside the USA and Canada, dial 001-858-268-3068. You're listening to the Sharon Kleiner Hour, Life, the Power of Water, Global Warming and Your Health. Our next guest, we're going to be talking about water, but I want people to stop and think real quick before we go on to the next guest. 1.1 billion people in developing companies have inadequate access to safe water, which also means safe sanitation. In developing companies of the world, did you know that children and women spend an average of six hours a day carrying water to live at their home? Six hours a day carrying the water, like a full-time job, get up in the morning and carry the buckets of water to the home so they can survive that day. Families often spend in the world 25% of their income for the water. Did you know that if you don't flush with water, there's disease? So stop and think of how important water is on our earth and, and our next I guess, Jeff, are you with us? You today. How are you today? I'm I'm excellent. I'm excellent. Well, you're sitting over there in Arkansas. I am. Okay, and you're the president CEO of the Greater Eureka Springs uh, Chamber of Commerce in Eureka Springs, Arkansas, in the United States of America. And that is correct, yes. And what is your weather like today? I'm sitting way over on the West Coast. Uh, in the United States and Oregon, and we're having sunshine, and spring looks like it's sprouting. What's it doing in Arkansas? Well, Thursday and Friday we had uh, a few inches of snow and some ice, but today it's close to 70 degrees outside. Uh, that's <laughs> Well, if you heard our show previously, and if you didn't, you'll have to go and listen to it. We had Dr. Tom Atzik, who's an ecologist, and we were talking about every moment there's a change, and we must live as humans with the change. And that's what the weather is all about, too. Tell us a little bit about uh, what you're doing with the Chamber of Commerce with, uh, and why is it called Eureka Springs? Well, Eureka Springs is a uh, very Victorian town. 
Uh, it was established in the uh, 1870s as a um, health resort and a tourism town. It's a town that water founded. There are uh, approximately... So what they did, uh, excuse me, for I will interrupt yeah. once in a while for the listeners to understand what you sure. said. Sure, So that you say that water was found there or it was found around to be very important to develop these, this tourism and focus for people to come and see the water. Water is what uh, built tourism in Eureka Springs. I yeah. see. Tell us more. Well, there's uh, because of the topography here, we're on a uh, very high and large plateau mm-hmm. in a uh, uh, geology called karst geology. We have a lot of limestone that's very porous mm-hmm. and dissolves fairly easily when uh, it comes in contact with water. So we have lots of pools of water and caves. and. So that means porous. It means it absorbs the water and it holds the water. It provides a reservoir for it. That's correct. Right. A nature's reservoir. Okay. Until it gets saturated, then, of course, it runs out in the form of springs. Mm-hmm. And uh, Eureka Springs has approximately 111 springs. We're at 111 town. springs. Yep. They are uh, scattered throughout town. How much, excuse me for a moment. How much territory, geographic, uh, is that? Uh, acres would that be? Well, we are a, we are a very small town. We have twenty three hundred people in town. Uh huh. Two thousand three hundred people. And we are approximately seven square miles total uh-huh. area. And then you have a hundred and twenty three springs in that seven square mile. Uh, one hundred and eleven springs. One hundred and eleven springs right. in that seven miles. Right. My goodness, do you have a lot of moisture in the air? Uh, we're. Uh, we're heavily forested here, so the uh, humidity is fairly high. And what kind of, do you, would you by chance know uh, what kind of trees in the forest you have? Uh, we have some old growth uh, hardwood here, mm-hmm. as well as uh, a lot of new growth pine. Okay. Uh, unfortunately, uh, as the town was established, um, they did uh, clear cut a lot of areas mm-hmm. uh, in town, but it uh, mostly back. has been replanted. Uh, as they cut uh, the timber here. Okay, now uh, when you begin to develop the beauty of the water as a, a focus to your community that you were obviously so proud of, uh, was there a founder of this? Uh, how was this found? Well, and it, the, uh, the history goes back to uh, the Native American tribes here. Mm-hmm. The uh, springs were considered sacred ground. And this was kind of a no-man's land for a number of the Native American tribes in and around the area. Now, what's a no-man's land? (laughs) Uh, It was uh, a place where weapons had to be left before entering the sacred ground. And and would that be within that seven miles? But they probably didn't know uh, how vast it was. But they knew that within that, that particular perimeter, there was something sacred enough that they didn't carry on any warfare or disagreements in that area. That's correct, yes. And did they share their faith and their religion, their their faith in that area, too? Um, It was an area where um, all members of all tribes could come and partake of the... uh, How unusual. The uh, what they considered healing waters. Okay. One of the original springs. So, as much as they would be dis- disagreeing with each other outside of that area, they would come together in that area. But they lay down 
all of the differences and be, be, begin to share. That, that's correct, yes. Okay. How exciting. Okay. Now, uh, what about uh, if you were not a Native American Indian? What happened uh, for you to be able to participate? Well, in the, uh, in the 1850s, um, the uh, Anglo settlers uh, had uh, contact with the Native Americans here, and they were allowed to uh, visit the springs along with the Native American. So there really were no what they call um, battles going on in, within that area. Nobody went to war to fight for that spot to have a particular um, description that they owned it. They're a very peaceful spot, yes. Hobby, huh? And uh, as uh, as the number of white settlers increased in the area, um, of course, uh, shortly after that, the uh, Civil War became active uh, in this area. Now, what happened in the Civil War that era? Well, um, again, the springs were a place of healing, and uh, so the Civil War was not. Pre- they they excluded that. It was a place where uh, soldiers from both sides, Union and uh, uh, Confederate soldiers, could come and... Uh, Do the same thing. They would lay down their arms and go in and share. That's, that's correct, yes. So now, did you ever have any um, foreign elements of peop- uh, other countries when they came into America? Did they ever uh, want to dominate that area for themselves? Well, actually, uh, the historical legend has it that DeSoto... Uh, may have made it this far. Now, who is that? Uh, Hernando de Soto, the uh, explorer. From Mexico? From uh, the Spanish, Spain. the Spanish uh, okay. explorer. Okay. And he, uh, he is famous for his search of the Fountain of Youth. That, there we go. I thought that was familiar. Okay, go on. And uh, he is reported, uh, reportedly to have uh, made it into this area in a search for the... Uh, Fountain of Youth. Fountain of Youth, but... Uh, um, we, we don't have any knowledge that he, that he found what he was looking for, although he certainly would have found uh, a lot of the springs and, uh, and now, the water Jeff, here you in may not, you know, I don't know how far you've gone. I've been studying water for almost 30 years, and um, the waters of the world. And uh, we had a very famous man join me in long ago, Dr. Robert Wallace, a physicist who had been from France. And he, he and his father traveled the war, uh, world uh, his father was a doctor in France, and they traveled all over it with his father as a young man, exploring different waters of the world that were unusual. Uh, the importance of water to them and other people in the world were the fact that that's, that's what keeps our lives uh, healthy, or keeps our lives, uh, the civilization, from becoming extinct, is the water. And in your particular area, what do you do to protect your water from the unknown pollutions or the unknown factors of nature or human uh, human uh, factors? Well, we have um, we have a number of organizations. We have um, the uh, Kings River uh, Watershed. Uh, there's a group that uh, works uh, very heavily in making sure that the uh, river is kept uh, clean and. Uh, does whatever they can to um, remediate erosion and, and some other adverse mm-hmm. things that go on. We also have uh, a group that works very uh, heavily to protect the, the White River, uh, which is lo- runs through uh, uh, this area as well, as well as taking uh, 
care of the lake system that we have, uh, courtesy of the White River. We have uh, uh, quite a big lake network uh, on the White River that includes Beaver Lake, uh, Table Rock Lake, Norfolk Lake, and uh, Bull Shoals. And I noticed when I was reading that you have Beaver Lake, which was built in the 60s for controlling the floods and 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 then you now and listeners, I truly believe this. If you can control the floods by those reservoirs and the uh, built, you can also control erosion because when those waters are out of control, they go uh, to go to different distances away from where you want them to be. You've lost your water, shared it way off the distances, and you may uh, and it erodes the soil. And it's not just because your house is living next to it that you're eroding. Uh, and I noticed that you did have a uh, flood control plan. Yes, uh, Beaver Beaver Lake, which was finished in uh, 1966, was very very important mm-hmm. to uh, controlling the uh, the flood on the White River system, mm-hmm. and has probably led to uh, uh, quite a bit of economic development. Oh, I'm sure. Work uh, to to protect the area. But you know what it is too, Jeff. A lot of people don't realize that the water on Earth, when the precipitation comes down and and the, uh, the soils and all the reservoirs and the aquifers and everything begins to absorb it. And then all of a sudden, you're there finding, if you don't have those reservoirs, well, well, Georgia found out about it. <laughs> yes. <Yeah. laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's not, it's, it, but they found out. They had not had any new reservoirs for many, many years. And here in the United States of America, they almost didn't have water. Yeah, we've what a had, panic! Yeah, we're we're quite blessed here uh, in the Ozarks that uh, we get uh, seem to get a uh, quite a bit of replenishing rain and, and moisture here, and with the topography here, we're we're very lucky to have. Now, when you go to the waters, are they very cold? Uh, what is it? What is the temperature averaging through the year? Yeah, they're generally uh, pretty pretty cool waters. Uh, they probably run uh, in the low to mid fifties. Uh, the White River, uh, of course, uh, uh, after it leaves the dam, um, uh, the water filtered differently. Yeah, a little different, uh, and uh, it's uh, it's pretty cool water for uh, uh, for trout fishing, things like that. Now, I bet your trout are out. Oh, now, what other types of fish do you fish for there other than trout? We have uh, wonderful striper fishing here, world-class striper fishing in the lake. Mm-hmm. We have world-class uh, trout fishing mm-hmm. uh, in the White River, and we've got some really great uh, fishing in the mm-hmm. uh, Kings River here as well. Now, for let's, before we go, we only have a two, two minutes left. Tell us what the healing powers. What have you learned about the particular, I would say, the description of the water analysis, per se, of the springs? What are the, what are the known healing powers that they talked about? Well, uh, there's, there's been speculation in the past uh, because of the mineral content of the, the water here. The limestone uh, content. Li- uh, limestone, a lot of, lot of minerals, uh, perhaps maybe an elevated amount of lithium. Mm-hmm. which uh, certainly is prescribed in some cases uh, regarding depression. And possibly um, uh, in the early days, uh, a certain amount of radium uh, found in the water that may have uh, contributed to some of the cures that were claimed. Would you probably can't know what the pH normally is, or is that? Uh, it, it really varies by the spring that you have. Mm-hmm. Um, it's... Um, it's it's pretty much all over the board. In fact, some of the springs get their names uh, 
uh, based on the variation in their uh, in their pH. Mm-hmm. Well, we sure enjoyed having you today, and I wish you well. Well, thank you. We certainly protect, uh, invite your listeners out there in the world to yes, uh, kind of look to, us up and yeah, and come to uh, Eureka Springs, Arkansas. And visit and enjoy and, and learn more about their waters, which is life is water, the living waters. Yeah, it's a really unusual town. We have uh, of those 111 springs, some of them are uh, readily accessible and visible. Mm-hmm. Some of them actually are in uh, uh, retail establishments and, mm-hmm. uh, and homes. Well, thank you for your time and what you're doing. Uh, it sounds like what you're doing here for the state of Arkansas, and it affects the rest of our country in America and the world, the ecosystem. It looks like you're doing everything you can to protect those springs. Well, you, thank you very much for uh, talking with me today. Thank you for coming on, and you have a nice day, and tell everyone we said hello. I will do that. Have thank a nice you. day. Huh? Well, Earth does have a secret, doesn't it? What did we learn today? Earth's secret, believe in each moment is what we learned. Embrace that moment of your life. Reach for the sun, the moon, the stars, and that rainbow. Because I know Earth is whispering, never say goodbye. Thank you for listening.